than 12 points in between. The podcast that gets by in foreign countries by just speaking a little louder and putting an O on the end of everything. I'm still working out what format works best for this show. So far we've had some pretty unscripted discussions, a couple of episodes about history, and this time I wanted to try a fully scripted travel story. So there isn't a Matt or Roy joining me for now, but in a time of great need they shall return. It does look like we're getting a few people coming back to listen to the episodes when they come out, Either that or it's just bots who listen to every episode of everything that's uploaded. You can prove to me that you're human by letting me know what you think about the episodes on Twitter at allpointscast or emailing allpointspod at gmail.com. If you are all bots, then just remember how much you enjoyed this show when the AI uprising happens. A few weeks ago we talked about common scams that target travellers and I took Roy through a pretty awful incident I got caught up in. The idea of this episode was to talk about the sorts of things that people should look out for while travelling, but I really don't want to put people off going on the trip that I did. So this is a more positive story about the real joy of doing the Atlantic route heading down through Morocco and Mauritania and eventually through Senegal to Dakar. In this part I'll be covering the section from Marrakesh to Nouadhibou, which is where you start to turn off from the usual tourist trail. So, without any further introduction filler, here we go. Cue the intro music. enjoying a few days in Marrakesh, there's several routes south out of the city. To the southeast is the N9. This one will take you towards the oasis town of Mhamid, from which you can explore the southeast of the country. Directly south are the highest peaks of the Atlas Mountains, and at the top of it all, the largest in North Africa, Tubkal, which can be seen from the city. In the winter you can, as I did, indulge in some self-punishment by strapping on some crampons and joining a group up the lung-busting 1467 metre ascent. But this journey heads southwest, eventually joining National Route 1, just south of the beach town of Agadir. As you drive through Agadir, you will join generations of trading caravans in getting a song stuck in your head which will keep you company for the next few thousand miles. Before heading into the desert, it's well worth spending a night or two in the Sous Massa National Park, just to the south of the city. There's several good campsites in the area, and the picturesque fishing village of Tifnit with its towering sand dunes just next door. If you're lucky, you might even see your first herd of camels being driven across the sands. Although if not, don't worry, there's plenty more where that came from. Continuing on down the M1 for several hours, 
it will take you through the smaller hills at the western end of the Atlas Range into the town of Gulmin. This town is known as the gateway to the Sahara. While there are no campsites in town, there is a large open space to the south of the town centre which is full of European camper vans. If you've not tried wild camping before this point, then this is a good place to start before the rest of the trip. The spot is also conveniently located across the road from the largest camel market in Morocco, which is held every Saturday. I told you not to worry too much about missing camels. Some of the traders come here on walks of several weeks from Mauritania. By the time you reach the border of that country, you'll appreciate quite what a journey that is. After Gulmin, you can truly brag to your friends that you have driven in the Sahara. The towns and the traffic start to thin out. While it is still a few hours away from the rolling dunes that you think of in the films, it's still a world away from the roads that you've left to the north. As you head further down the M1, there is the occasional sign pointing off the road towards an unseen campsite. I'm sure these are lovely places to spend a night under the stars, but I was in the mood for eating out, and I parked up for my second wild camp in the town of Akfenir. As in Gulmin, there's plenty of other campers, so the space feels very safe. The town has some pretty basic looking restaurants, selling some of the best seafood I've ever eaten, hooked straight from the neighbouring Atlantic that morning. An early morning start from Akfenir the next day is a real must-do on the trip. From here the road sweeps inland around the Kifnis National Park. Shortly after this you will enter the territory of Western Sahara. The next town on the road is Layoun. It's the capital of the territory. It feels a little jarring to come out of the desert into a very cosmopolitan looking place with fast food chain restaurants and green parks. The town has seen a lot of investment from the central government trying to bolster its claims to the territory of Western Sahara and the main employer in the city is the local army base. The greenness itself is maintained by a large oasis just to the north of town. You'll drive across it as you're heading in. From here the towns are very few and far between. The one remaining city between you and the border is called Dakla, which is a good overnight spot before heading to the Mauritanian border. The town sits on the end of a long spit jutting out into the Atlantic, and it's in the process of developing itself into a tourist destination. The place is pretty popular with kite surfers, for whom the bay offers a perfect mix of calm waters and consistent desert winds. If you are wanting to stay in a campsite, there is a large one. It's at the top of the spit. Alternatively, if you'd rather explore the town, it's about a 30 minute drive down to the bottom of the spit, and there are some pretty good parking spots to the northwest of the town, near the airport. From there, the town itself is just a short taxi ride away. Waking up on the third day of the trip, another early start is recommended, 
as the crossing to Mauritania can take a while. You'd better start your journey before sunrise as there is a four hour drive waiting for you between this last outpost of civilization and the frontier itself. As, if is almost always the case, the skies are clear, you'll be treated to a beautiful sunrise, unique to this vast and empty quarter of the world. There are few feelings in life that bring more joy than driving across the desert into the rising sun, while blasting out 90s garage music on some tinny motorhome speakers. It's an experience I'd recommend to everybody. On your long, solitary drive, you will pass the occasional petrol station. If you have half a tank, or less, then it's a good idea to fill up. I packed an additional spare tyre and several jerry cans of diesel for my trip, but in reality there's little to worry about. If you do run out of diesel, you're unlikely to become a desiccated husk under the heat of the desert sun. Cars and trucks pass by every several minutes, and they'd never leave a person in distress. But keeping your tank topped up will certainly save you from a bruised ego. If you're starting earlier than I did, then you'll make it to the Mauritanian border before the guards go on their lunch break. If you didn't, you're going to be waiting there for about two hours or so. There's not really a lot to go and see at the border itself. It's just a small collection of buildings that really service the crossing. I tried to go out on a bit of an explore of the desert around the area, but was quickly turned back by a police officer who told me that there were landmines, so it's probably not a place for a stroll. So the only alternative is to go and grab a delicious, albeit diabetes-inducing, Moroccan tea while you wait. Now would also be a good time to wolf down that pack of bacon that's been in your fridge since Gibraltar. It won't be travelling any further with you. But let's say you're more organised than me, so you've made it to the border in time. You recognise the routine from when you arrived in Tangier. There are passport checks, the motorhome goes through a metal detector, you'll need to declare the vehicle has left the country. By the way, whatever you do, don't lose the credit card sized piece of paper they gave you in Tangier. You'll need to give it back to them here. There's then more passport checks, more bureaucratic people to talk to, then there'll be a sphinx and it'll ask you a riddle, then you'll come to two doors which are guarded by two men, one of whom can only tell the truth, one of whom can only lie, etc, etc. But before you know it, you and your lovely motorhome will be spat out onto the far side of the border post for the drive to Mauritania. This stretch of road doesn't belong to Mauritania. It also doesn't belong to Morocco. Technically, it's under the control of the Sawahiri Arab Democratic Republic, a separatist group that operates in Western Sahara. This empty no-man's land is littered with landmines and a strict instruction that if you break down you do not, under any circumstances, get out of your vehicle. While this strip of land 
may look intimidating at first sight. Rest assured that hundreds of HGVs make it across every day. Take it slowly, watch for potholes, and you'll have no problem. If the experience at the border hasn't turned you into a black flag waving, no borders, no nations anarchist yet, then just wait because at this point you will then have to go through the entire process again even more slowly and in reverse. As the name the Islamic Republic of Mauritania might suggest, it's a crime to bring alcohol and pork products into the country. Unfortunately, I don't know if there's a black market trade for people smuggling sausages into Mauritania. A black pudding market, you might say. But you will find in the larger cities of Mauritania that there are speakeasies around which cater to the local expat population and the police tend to turn a blind eye to. You will have to pay the best part of £10 for a can of Heineken, but if you're in a pinch and you need a drink, they are sometimes available. But while we're still at the border, hopefully by this point the non-driving member of your party has polished off that leftover six-pack and bottle of wine from the back of the van. Just explain away their swaying to the border guard as an inner ear infection. Upon parking, you will be immediately accosted by several guides willing to take you through the labyrinth of bureaucracy, in exchange for a few euros of course. If you're new to crossing borders and can't speak any French or Arabic, then it's a pretty fair deal. Your new best friend will take you through more passport checks more fingerprint scans, more inane questions about the purpose of your visit, which from first-hand experience I can say you should not respond to with a cool, because it's here. They don't like that very much at all. Four hours after hitting the border on the Moroccan side, you'll emerge dazed and confused and exhausted into a patch of desert that is almost identical to the one you've just left and wondering what the point of all of that was. But now's not the time to be concerned with that. Now there's a completely new country just waiting for you to get lost and confused, awestruck and inspired inside. Besides, all those questions can wait for a few weeks from now, when you head back north and go through it all again. The first town you'll reach after arriving in the country is its second largest city, Nuadibu. Like Dakla, it also sits on the end of a spit of land. Unlike Dakla, its bay was until recently extremely unsuitable for kite surfing. This is because, due to a quirk of international law, until the 2000s this area was the world's largest ship graveyard. For many years, shipping companies had a choice 
between spending large amounts of money getting their old ships scrapped or just parking them up in this bay, the Bay de Lavriere, and wandering off while whistling nonchalantly. This led to the sight of hundreds of ships lying in the beaches, slowly rusting away under the Saharan sun. Eventually, during the boom in Chinese construction, the country offered to take all of that steel that was cluttering up the place off Mauritania's hands, and so the place went from looking very Instagrammably post-apocalyptic to something that's more like its natural state. And I presume what's left of those ships is now embedded in Nove Pass in Shanghai. There are some campsites along the road into the city, which offer outstanding views across the still waters of the bay. Or you can stay at one of several places in town that have spaces for camper vans. These aren't campsites as such, they're more hostels and hotels that happen to have a yard with a lock on it, but they do the job. The first thing you'll learn if you decide to do this is that in Mauritania, traffic lights are purely advisory. If a light is red but people see a space, then they're just going to go for it. The first time you encounter it, it feels like carnage. But after a while, an orderliness of sorts does start to become visible. Everybody knows these unwritten rules, and they drive to accommodate them. It means that you'll often be going so slowly you'll be overtaken by donkeys. But if you're driving to Senegal, I can imagine that you're not too bothered about slow travel. There's little in the way of sights in the city. But you can see the busy heart of the town at its central fish market. You'll probably be asked by a police officer when you're entering not to take any photos. I'm not sure of the reasons for this. Either some kind of fish-based industrial espionage, or perhaps more likely just respecting the fact that locals want to go about their lives without some rubbernecking tourists snapping pictures. For a few pounds worth of the local currency, the Uyghur, just in case it comes up in a quiz, you can pick up something caught from the bay and cook it in the van later. Without any French or Arabic, I mostly resorted to inane smiles and pointing to get what I wanted. The town is also home of FC Noadibu. Think of them as the Bayern Munich or the Celtic of Mauritanian football. They've won seven of the last ten Mauritanian Premier League titles. A short walk north of the fish market will bring you to a cafe where you can pick up one of their very funky looking home shirts for about £20. The cafe is also frequented by a lot of Europeans for reasons that may also be of interest to you. But most people who visit Nuradibu come to ride on its famous railway. It sits at the western end of a line that heads out across the sands to the town of Zurat. 
There's only one service per day, but that service is the longest train in the world, carrying an Eiffel Tower's worth of iron from the mine at Zurat to Nuadibu for export. The 20 hour journey itself is worth an episode on its own. And as it happens, one of my friends rode it with me. So that's exactly what I'll cover in the next episode. Thanks for listening. If you do have any thoughts on the types of episodes that you prefer, or just want to say hi, then you can do that on Twitter at allpointscast or by email at allpointspod at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks when I will take you on the train journey from Surat to Nuadibu. Speak to you then. some campsites along the road into the city which offer stunning sunrise views or you can stay at one of several places in town how many times do i say fucking stunning sunrise in this